1964, Music Business Magazine released a full issue dedicated to the city of Nashville. One of the articles contains this quote from Owen Bradley. You know, music could be compared to ice cream. When we were kids, there were only about three ice creams, vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry, and only about two music styles, slow and fast. The other day, I went into a Dipper Dan parlor, and they had 48 different flavors, including licorice. And today, there are many, many flavors of music. I suppose you call them trends, but they go down in history and frequently are revived. End quote. Little Richard releases Tutti Frutti. Most listeners assume he's singing about ice cream or at least comparing the girls he dates to flavors of ice cream. And he kind of is, since Tutti Frutti is a minced fruit ice cream served in Europe since at least the mid-1800s. But there's a bit more to the story. Richard Penniman, a self-described omnisexual and ex-drag queen, started his career in gay nightclubs of the 1940s by hammering on piano keys and screaming out songs like Tutti Frutti, which his producer and several band members recall originally had the chorus, Tutti Frutti, Good Booty. Verses were mostly improvised for each performance, typically on the dominant theme of why and how to have anal sex. Years later, on a short break from a frustrating recording session in which Richard's struggling to cut loose the way he does on stage, he goes over to a piano and launches into the old vulgar standby. His producer knows it's a hit and that they'll all be thrown in jail if the lyrics aren't changed. So he brings in a wannabe songwriter named Dorothy Labostri to clean up the words. Years later, Dorothy will claim Little Richard wrote none of Tutti Frutti. According to her, she had the title in her head ever since seeing the flavor in an ice cream shop years earlier. When asked to write new lyrics for Richard's song, she came up with the title and scribbled out lyrics in 15 minutes with no input from anyone else. Cute story, and it could be true if told 20 years earlier by Slim Gaylord or Slam Stewart, writers and performers of Tutti Frutti. I don't want vanilla, I don't want chocolate. Bring me some of that good Tutti Frutti. This song is definitely about ice cream. It was also a number three pop hit in 1938 when Little Richard was five years old. Given the all but identical chorus, Richard's song likely began as a crass parody of a familiar hit rather than an idle thought in the mind of a lady in line for a waffle cone. But you know, music could be compared to ice cream. It's easy to forget how much refrigeration technology changed the world, how fast it happened, and how recently it was. I can't imagine many people were very excited about dinner every night before refrigerators made it into the average home. The ruling class has always eaten comparatively well, so naturally, none of this applies to them, 
And don't get me wrong, working class families have always celebrated special occasions with food worth bragging about to the other kids. If your family was wealthy enough to send someone to market every few days, dinner could even be pretty great several nights a week. But when we watch TV shows and movies from the 1940s and 1950s about a group of kids from blue-collar families, and it seems like there's always one kid who can't wait to get home to see what his mom made for dinner, even though it's just a Tuesday, no special occasion. The reason this character started showing up in this era is because it's when his family got a fridge. Or when the show's TV station picked up a name-brand appliance sponsor. Is there something I can do for you, young man? Yes, sir. Here. I want to buy my mom a refrigerator for Christmas, and I've saved up $3.15. Well, son, I'm afraid that's hardly... Oh, uh, <clears throat> why, certainly, sir. Now, here's a refrigerator I know your mother likes. It's a new Frigidaire. Isn't it a beauty? Dad, this is the one. This is the one Mom said she wanted. It sure is. Prior to the 1940s, the closest thing you'd find in most homes was an icebox. A small cabinet-like box with an ice compartment to keep the contents cool but not refrigerated. Basically, a shitty vertical cooler with shelves. The reason Irma Rombauer's landmark cookbook, The Joy of Cooking, placed such priority on reusing leftovers, including a dish called eggplant filled with leftover food, is because it came out in 1931 when leftovers had much shorter shelf lives. Since leftovers not eaten or hidden in another recipe would soon spoil in the icebox, what you were having for dinner on any given night was almost never a surprise. Just like coolers need their ice replaced to keep cool, so it was with an icebox. Since ice produced by mechanical means didn't really become standard until around the year 1900, ice had to come from a natural source for most of human history. Ice harvesting is about as old as human history. There have been people living near mountaintops and in Arctic regions for millennia, and those folks never had to go very far for ice, so they used it in various ways, according to the tools and knowledge of their era. But just about every major city in history with conceivable access to a natural source of ice was home to a ruling class who wanted ice, even if only to serve cool drinks or slushy desserts at a party. This ice could be obtained by sawing bricks out of frozen lakes, as was done in China at least as early as 11 BC, freezing shallow sheets of water by manipulating cold air in the desert at night, as was done in Persia at least as early as 5 BC, or sending a team of people a hundred miles away to climb a mountain and bring some ice back without letting it melt. Of course, anyone with enough money to fund such labor-intensive enterprises could also afford to build an ice house, a small, specially insulated structure on one's property to store large pieces of ice, chipping off smaller pieces as needed. Eventually, some enterprising minds thought to build commercial-sized ice houses, where they stored huge amounts of ice and sold it to everyone who owned a personal ice house in the area. The ice trade was born. Since the only practical way to obtain and transport commercial volumes of ice was the big block sawed from a frozen lake method, ice vendors either hired a supplier or went and got the product themselves. Either way, costs were forwarded to the customer and ice remained an expensive commodity in most of the world for most of history. As you'd expect, whenever a dessert we'd recognize as ice cream shows up on this timeline, it's a dish for the privileged few. While the French certainly had some version prior to the 1500s when Catherine de' Medici is wrongly believed to have introduced ice cream from Italy, 
No reasonably affordable cafe in Paris had ice cream on the menu until the late 1600s. In the early 1800s, Frederick Tudor figured out how to ship unprecedented amounts of ice from New England to ice house depots in the Caribbean, then forward to the southern U.S., launching an industrial-era upgrade of the ice trade. Since this natural resource was far more plentiful than, say, gold, Tudor's business model quickly attracted heavy competition, which drove down the price of ice around the world. 1825, the horse-drawn ice cutter is invented. Within 10 years, ice becomes affordable for pretty much everyone. Within 20 years, the patent is filed for the first hand-cranked ice cream churn, leading to greater numbers of ice cream parlors and mobile vendors. In the mid-1800s, the food industry starts figuring out how to ship commercial quantities of perishables with huge blocks of ice inside insulated compartments on ships and railroad cars. As industrial freezers and reliable ice manufacturing technology begin rolling out in the early 1900s, there's another increase in the number of ice cream parlors and mobile vendors. Then again, when prohibition hits in the 1920s and adults crave alternative indulgences, like sugary frozen desserts and malted milkshakes from a soda shop counter. Speaking of drinks, I'm sure many of you enjoy iced tea. It was invented in 1860-something, soon after the insulated railway car. But most people learned about iced tea at the same 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis where the idea of serving ice cream in a waffle cone was popularized. It had been done before, but for whatever reason, the one ice cream vendor serving waffle cones at this World's Fair began outselling everyone else. So all the other vendors switched to waffle cones and a fad was born. Even at this point in history, ice cream remained a dessert for special occasions. One could even call it a destination dessert typically requiring at least a trip into town and far likelier to present itself in already special destinations like beach towns or theme parks or a world's fair. It's true those who cared to go through the trouble could make ice cream themselves. According to a New York Times article from 1943, pilots in World War II tied five-gallon buckets of ice cream mixture to the outside of their planes before flying missions. When or if they landed, it was with a bucket of ice cream thoroughly frozen from the extremely cold temperature of flying at high speed and great altitude. Most people just use the hand crank churn. But however you got your hands on some ice cream, the only thing you could do was eat it before it melted. Then, after World War II, factories went back to making domestic product rather than war supplies and freezers became a common household appliance in the United States. The option to take ice cream home and keep it frozen revolutionized the industry and a smorgasbord of new flavors appeared. Still, though, Owen Bradley was not exaggerating when he said vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry were the only flavors he knew as a child. There were homemade recipes, gourmet vendors in major cities offered greater variety, and the menu at Howard Johnson's restaurants eventually grew to 28 flavors. On the road around the corner, here's the place to go. The orange roof of Howard Johnson's, join the folks who know. Good food, good fun, kids count too. 28 flavors just for you at Howard Johnson's. Next stop. But the original location opened with only vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry in 1925, when Owen Bradley was 10 years old. Baskin-Robbins didn't even hit 31 flavors until 1953. The year before Owen built the first modern recording studio in Nashville to manufacture the take-home containers of sound he'd been shipping to market since the 1940s. 
You're listening to Cocaine and Rhinestones, the podcast about 20th century country music and the lives of those who gave it to us. My name is Tyler Mahan Co. I've heard these stories my whole life. As far as I can tell, here's the truth about this one. The story of Nashville as the capital of country music begins with the launch of the Grand Ole Opry in the middle of the 1920s. But that's only the beginning, and several other southern cities still had a chance to become Country Music USA right up until the 1940s when the Opry moved into the Ryman Auditorium following 20 years of venue changes caused by local complaints over the noise, traffic, and out-of-towners coming to the big country music show every weekend. Nobody wanted to live next to this circus. Even wealthy residents whose neighborhoods were never affected still worried over the reputation WSM's hoedown would give the city. They didn't want the rest of the world thinking Nashville was a place full of low-class hillbillies playing a lower class of music. And indeed, anyone with this impression of the city would have been mistaken. There were some honky-tonks in Nashville at the time, but they were no more prevalent, popular, or accepted than in any other city of the South. Disreputable is a word frequently used by country musicians of this era to describe the way they were viewed and treated while trying to eat at restaurants or check into hotel rooms in Nashville. If you took a drive around town looking for live music, the nicer evening spots were way more Cab Calloway than Cowboy, same as any other metropolis in the 1920s and 1930s, the era of big band and swing jazz. And it probably did come as a shock to some early Opry listeners who made the pilgrimage to attend a broadcast, expecting to find a city built from hay bales and chicken wire. But Nashville being an ordinary city didn't stop them from coming back, more every year and from further away as WSM continued to expand its reach, quickly creating the new national headquarters of country music. 1939, WSM partners with NBC's affiliate network. Roy Acuff joined the Opry lineup the year before, so he's the hot new thing as the show goes national and he is instantly turned into a star. 1940, Roy Acuff and the Smoky Mountain Boys go to Los Angeles to play Wabash Cannonball, complete with Acuff's train whistle imitation in the movie Grand Ole Opry. From the great Atlantic Ocean to the wide Pacific shore From the queen of flowing mountains to the south bell by the shore She's mighty tall and handsome and known well by all She's the combination on the Wabash Cannonball Not counting Hollywood singing cowboys, Roy Acuff is now the most famous country singer alive. 1942, he launches A Cuff Rose. The idea is to own his publishing and create a better company for country artists who, like himself, are tired of being treated like dumb hillbillies or novelty acts and getting screwed over by big city publishers and go-betweens. From this point forward, guest artists in town to perform on the Grand Ole Opry can expect to be pitched the best songs in the A Cuff Rose catalog. Many of those artists signed to A Cuff Rose as writers. 1943, the biggest hoedown on American radio finds a real home at the Ryman, signaling a point of no return to the country music recording industry. 
artist invited to join the Opry lineup moved to Nashville without a second thought. Ernest Tubb is one of them. The city becomes the national epicenter of country talent, touring, and songwriting. But there are still no modern recording studios. So major label artists travel to New York City or LA or Chicago to make records in cities where the labels already have offices, studios, and publishing company relationships. When most of the country songs in these big city recording sessions suddenly start coming from the Acuff Rose catalog, the rest of the industry realizes they need feet on the ground in Nashville to stay competitive in the genre. Fall 1945, the end of World War II, lifts wartime rations limiting access to the materials needed to make records. It takes Nashville less than a year to start pumping out product. By the time Ernest Tubb opens his record shop in 1947, there's no denying country music has a new home. Back in the 1930s, Owen Bradley was in his late teens, early 20s, playing piano as a frontman and arranging all the music for a big band orchestra in Nashville nightclubs. He and his orchestra were sometimes hired for radio work. Before stations had digital banks of pre-recorded bumpers and beds, they needed live bands to play the music listeners heard between or behind announcements, commercials, and DJ segments. In 1940, soon after the affiliate deal with NBC's National Network, WSM hired Owen Bradley's orchestra as the house band. That's call sign WSM for We Shield Millions, motto of the National Life and Accident Insurance Company who launched the station to promote their insurance policies. In order to maximize sales, WSM tried to secure as wide a listenership as possible, which is why they programmed nearly nothing but pop music in their first few decades on air. Serious efforts to support the Grand Ole Opry with other country music programming did begin in the late 1940s, but WSM was not a country station and didn't switch to an all-country format until 1980. Prior to then, they largely stuck to the middle of the road and played plenty of whatever most listeners wanted to hear. The biggest record of 1940 was Tommy Dorsey's orchestra, with Frank Sinatra singing I'll Never Smile Again. What good would it do For tears would fill my eyes My heart would realize So, you know, boring stuff. Big band orchestra should have already given it away, but the kind of music Owen Bradley's band played was rarely even a little bit country. Most of what WSM wanted from him fell on the classically influenced or easy listening side of big band jazz. Owen Bradley grew up loving both classical music and jazz. When he was a kid, his family inherited some money and used it to buy a piano. Owen quickly learned to play the piano, then learned everything he could about the sounds of commercial music. And right now, we're talking about his dream of earning a living as a musician, not his personal taste. Regardless of whatever you may have been told, Owen Bradley grew up loving country music just as much as anything else. 
This was a kid born in Middle Tennessee in 1915. Before his family could afford a piano, the first instrument Owen learned was guitar, playing country music while his younger brother Harold plucked along on a banjo. But working musicians have to play what people want to hear or they starve. Aside from the Grand Ole Opry, there simply weren't many paying gigs for country musicians in Nashville because the genre was still commonly regarded as a joke. When Owen switched to the family's new piano, he gave his guitar to Harold and said to learn it. He said guitar, not banjo, would be the sound of the future. Again, these were always business decisions. Even after he started working primarily in big band jazz, Owen took country gigs when they were offered. For anyone looking to investigate Owen Bradley's country music pedigree, a good place to start would probably be the fact he's a co-writer on Roy Acuff's 1942 hit, Night Train to Memphis. Take that night train to Memphis, take that night train to Memphis, and when you arrive at the station, I'll be right there to meet you, I'll be right there to greet you, so don't turn down my invitation. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. I'll be shouting hallelujah all the day. Once Owen began building a reputation as the leader of a sophisticated musical outfit, he often did country work under a pseudonym, like how country artists a decade later would use fake names to cut rock records. In 1946, the first record released on the Bullet label was by Brad Brady and his Tennesseans. Other musicians, starting with D. Ford Bailey in the 1920s, had recorded in Nashville using portable units. This single is typically considered the birth of what became the Nashville recording industry. Not because it was cut at WSM's facilities, as several major label singles already were, but because Bullet was the first record label based in Nashville, and their first single being a hit inspired many more labels to set up shop in town, creating a local need for recording studios. As for the music itself, Zeb's Mountain Boogie probably sounds more like jazz than country to modern ears, but what you're hearing is essentially 1940s pop country. Zeb Turner's version of a guitar boogie going on a joyride up a mountain with Owen Bradley's orchestra in the back of his truck. After orders began pouring in, Owen Bradley told Bullet they could put his real name on the record instead of Brad Brady. I've never heard the A-side, but it's a cover of Elton Britt's number three country hit, Wave to Me My Lady, which ain't exactly a foot stomper. Just took a job in the railroad yard, pay me good, work me hard. 
Just took a job in the railroad yard Now I'm doing fine So won't you wave to me, my lady Wave to me, my lady Wave to me, my lady As I roll on down the line Oh, won't you wave to me, my lady And these were the sounds of the time. When Bullet's instant success cut a trail for others to follow, a few WSM engineers decided to get serious about putting the station's very nice facilities to use during off-hours to meet Nashville's sudden demand for studio space. They named the enterprise Castle Recording Laboratories, a.k.a. Castle Studios, after WSM's nickname, Air Castle of the South. Hank Williams' first professional recording session took place with the Castle crew at WSM in 1946. There wasn't enough room at WSM for Castle's massive recording machine, so they housed the unit in another building and forwarded the audio signal through a phone line. This is also how they cut the first song recorded in Nashville to go number one pop. Francis Craig used to be a band leader at WSM until he became a DJ, and Near You was supposed to be his farewell to a career as a musician. But then the single came out on Bullet in 1947, hit number one, and brought the Castle team far too much business to handle during late nights at WSM. After finding a rundown banquet room at the Tulane Hotel, they converted it to a studio and Nashville had its first commercial recording space. Most major label artists who recorded in Nashville over the next seven years or so held sessions at Castle's hotel studio. This includes Ernest Tubb, Burl Ives, Red Foley, The Stanley Brothers, Ray Price, Bill Monroe, Webb Pierce, and Kitty Wells. Artists who didn't arrive with a full band were typically backed up by Owen Bradley and whichever supplemental musicians he hired for the session. When you hear piano on records cut at Castle, if the artist didn't bring their own piano player, there's a strong chance you're listening to Owen Bradley. He played on the session where Kitty Wells cut It Wasn't God Who Made Honky Tonk Angels, and he played on many of Hank Williams' Nashville sessions, which followed Castle from WSM to the hotel in 1947 and stayed there for the rest of Hank's life. 
Whenever you hear Ernest Tubb on record calling out for Half Moon to take a piano lead, he's poking fun at Owen Bradley, telling him to go ahead and chop out a piece half as good as Moon Mulliken. Oh, come in, Half Moon. Oh, beat it out, sir. My fever starts to rise My heart goes pity-pat When I look into her eyes I break out in a sweat And then begin to twitch There ain't no vaccination for the love bug itch The skill set Owen acquired during his years as a band leader translated well to the studio. He knew how to scout, schedule, and direct musicians. He was able to quickly arrange a song, show everyone what he wanted them to do, then lead the session on piano. As producers who worked at Castle increasingly relied on him, what began with Owen hiring and leading the musicians soon turned into his doing nearly all the work credited to various producers. This was most notably the case with Paul Cohen of Decca Records. Paul lived in New York City and previously brought country artists there or Chicago to record. Then Castle started up and Decca's biggest country acts, like Ernest Tubb and Red Foley, wanted to make records near home with musicians they knew, instead of traveling to other cities and working with strangers who may not know or care anything about country music. So Paul started coming to Nashville for two or three weeks at a time to produce sessions, and he needed a local liaison, a musician known and respected by the other musicians in the room, but who could also view and manage operations from Paul's business-minded perspective. Less than a year after Castle moved into the Tulane Hotel, Paul Cohen created an assistant producer position at DECA for Owen Bradley. Please note, this was a job title at DECA, not a credit Owen began receiving on the labels of record. Paul Cohen continued to receive sole credit as producer for Owen Sessions, which begs the question, was Paul Cohen a producer or not? By modern definitions of the term, no, not really. But neither were the vast majority of producers in the early record business, nearly none of whom did most of the work we now associate with the job title. The first record producers were merely A&R executives. That's A&R for artist and repertoire, as in these were the guys who scouted and signed artists and therefore had a vested interest in quality control of the artist's repertoire. They chose or approved songs for their artist and oversaw production of the product they brought to the label. So yeah, early producers went in the studio with their artists, but mostly to make sure everything went down the way it was supposed to go down. Paul Cohen wasn't selecting a key for each song, arranging and assigning parts, or really giving any technical input to the musicians other than that's good or that's bad. He was there to keep his artists from making last-minute decisions to cut songs he hadn't selected or approved. He didn't need some bass player wasting expensive studio time, getting everyone to try a rumba instead of a waltz. If one of the musicians had an out-of-tune instrument or showed up too drunk to play, Paul Cohen needed to find out during the session, not from listening to a tape after it was too late to fix. In today's language, presented by Paul Cohen would make more sense as a label credit. Again, this is true for nearly every one of his peers and predecessors. According to Gordon Stoker of the Jordanaires, Elvis Presley was the real producer of every Elvis session Gordon worked, regardless of Chet Atkins or Steve Scholl's names appearing on the label. 
anyone ever produced by Pappy Daly will tell you he was mainly there to look at his watch while the session leader did all the actual work. If we're talking production in the modern sense, a person who makes a career out of having the greatest influence and control over the sound and music on multiple artist records, Owen Bradley was probably the first producer in Nashville, full stop. No matter what the words on the label say, Owen made most of the important technical and creative decisions when arranging all the pieces and players into the music we hear on records produced by Paul Cohen and several other executives who held sessions at Castle. In Michael Kosser's book How Nashville Became Music City USA, Muscle Shoals studio bassist Norbert Putnam gives an account of Owen Bradley's process. Owen auditioned Norbert by hiring him to play a show at a dinner club. When Norbert found out the band would be himself on bass, a drummer, and Owen on piano performing light jazz standards as a trio, he wondered if anyone knew the Muscle Shoals scene was mostly R&B. But Owen was only interested in seeing how well he handled completely unfamiliar material, how quickly he could figure out what to do by following Owen's left hand on piano all under the pressure of being watched by an audience. At the end of the night, Norbert learned he was Owen's new third call bassist. If neither Bob Moore nor Junior Husky could make a session, Owen would call Norbert. Then he was given a stack of records and told to go learn to impersonate Bob Moore and Junior Husky because it's all he was ever, ever going to be asked to do. The most important rule, never play something fancy over one of Owen's singers. And Norbert did get enough of those third-on-the-list phone calls to see how Owen Bradley ran a session. When Norbert later became a producer himself, he called Owen's way the correct way to run a session. Owen would walk in the studio, call everyone over to the piano, and play through a song one time while telling each musician and singer what he wanted them to do during each segment of a song. If anyone had a question, this was the time to ask. After the rundown, everyone went to their places and played through the complete song once, giving engineers enough time to make sure all the mics and cables were good while Owen listened to make sure everyone understood his instructions and the lead singer wasn't having any problems with the rhythm or key. Then the engineers hit record and everyone played the song again, and you had to play for keeps because this second performance sometimes ended up being the record. More often, it was a reference take for all the musicians to join Owen in the control room and listen to playback of what they'd just done. The tape was played at a loud enough volume for Owen to walk around and give quiet comments to each musician without allowing everyone to hear whether they were receiving praise or further instruction. Then everyone went back in the live room and made a record, usually in one or two takes. This was years after the Castle days, but it's how Owen Bradley always worked, and it's what Paul Cohen hired him to do at DECA in 1947. Before we really get started here, just as a frame of reference, all the guys most rock history books credit with pioneering the art of record production, like Phil Spector, Joe Meek, and George Martin, none of them did anything that mattered to the history of record production until the late 1950s. When Paul Cohen left DECA in 1958, Owen Bradley stepped up to become head of the Nashville division and finally began receiving production credit after over a decade of uncredited work. Now I think it's time we give him credit for the Nashville sound. The topic we're about to broach has been made quite difficult by the spread of misinformation and confusion. 
In order to answer one question, a question I've intentionally left unpacked until now because of how many people I'm about to upset, I'm put in the unenviable position of having to correct fundamental mistakes in the most well-respected, influential, and commonly cited books on the subject of country music. The problematic question, what is the Nashville sound? Since an accurate understanding of the Nashville sound is necessary before we can move on to the rest of the season, the complete answer will require the rest of this episode and most of the next. Please think of the first three episodes in this season as a bridge between season one and the main body of season two. As with the Bakersfield sound, let's start by asking, what is the first record with the Nashville sound on it? Nearly every attempt at answering this question begins with a list of singles from the year 1957. This list typically includes songs like Ferlin Husky's Gone, Since you've gone, the moon, the sun, the stars in the sky, know the reason why I cry, love. Jim Reeves' Four Walls. Four walls to hear me. Four walls to see. Four walls to hear me. Closing Jimmy C. Newman's A Fallen Star. A fallen star. None of these are the first Nashville sound record, and neither is any other from the year 1957. Young Love by Sonny James is only one of many earlier records which debunk such lists. A heavenly touch of your embrace tells me no one could take your place ever in my heart. Now, I'm not saying Young Love is the first Nashville sound record because I know for a fact it is not. But if any person wants to suggest a song from 1957 is the Nashville sound while Young Love is not, it's purely because they believe something they read in a book or saw in a documentary more than they trust their own ears and judgment. Young Love was produced by Ken Nelson in late 1956. In the studio Owen Bradley built in 1954 after learning Castle would shut down the following year. 
Because of the internal power struggle at WSM over Jim Denny's control of the Grand Ole Opry in 1953, all other WSM employees entered 1954 knowing their side gigs in the music business would soon be officially declared conflicts of interest. When the WSM engineers behind Castle found out the Tulane Hotel was scheduled for demolition anyway, instead of looking for a new studio space, they decided to shut down Castle and keep their day jobs at the radio station. And I do wonder if they ever kicked themselves for not rolling the dice, because when the Castle crew called it a day, Nashville still didn't have a modern recording studio. There were other rooms being used to make records, but none were designed and built for studio use, and none were any better than Castle's repurposed hotel banquet room. When Paul Cohen told Owen Bradley he was thinking of moving Decca's entire country music operation down to Texas once Castle closed, Owen suggested going in 50-50 to build a new studio themselves. Paul agreed, but never actually put up his end of the money, so Owen moved forward on his own, taking out a loan to purchase a house at 804 16th Avenue South. He and Harold gutted the house and removed most of the ground level's floor to turn the basement into a live room with a two-story tall ceiling. The first time Sonny James used this studio, he recorded Young Love. The following month, Berlin Husky recorded Gone in this studio. The first time Jimmy C. Newman used this studio, he recorded A Fallen Star. One of the only singles commonly listed as the first Nashville sound record not cut in this studio was Jim Reeves' Four Walls. So let's follow that thread for a second. In 1954, RCA Records rented a big unused meeting room in a building owned by a Methodist church organization. It was a very similar setup to Castle, a repurposed room not built for audio, but decent enough to serve as RCA's Nashville studio for several years. This is where Jim Reeves recorded Four Walls in 1957, in a session produced by Chet Atkins. As such, people who believe this to be the first Nashville sound record believe Chet Atkins created the Nashville sound. And there really are just millions of people who will believe and repeat something they read in a book or saw in a documentary more than they will trust their own ear. In 1968, Bill Malone published Country Music USA, the first serious scholarly work on the genre, in which he writes of how Chet Atkins moved to town and, quote, immediately began to shape and direct the style of music heard in Nashville, end quote. I have so much respect for Mr. Malone, but this is not remotely what happened, and his book greatly overstates Chet Atkins' role compared to Owen Bradley's role in creating and reinventing the sound of Nashville recording sessions. Country Music USA returns to Chet Atkins over a dozen times, while Owen Bradley is given only two passing mentions in the entire book. This has proven to be a disastrously influential oversight. As one may expect from the title, Paul Hemphill's The Nashville Sound has been the first and only source consulted and cited on this topic by most interested parties ever since the book was first published in 1970. Following set precedent, this book tells readers that if one man can be credited with creating The Nashville Sound, then the man would be Chet Atkins. I have so much respect for Mr. Hemphill, but this is objectively untrue. If there is one man, his name has always been Owen Bradley. In his autobiography, Chet Atkins remembers the first session he worked in Nashville being produced by, you guessed it, 
Owen Bradley, in 1946, the year before Chet signed an artist contract with RCA. Chet Atkins' early RCA records did not sell well enough to justify remaining in Nashville, so he didn't. And this is the timeline on these two men. One was already defining what would become known as the Nashville methods of recording, arrangement, and production years before the other mattered enough to be able to afford rent in the city. Chet Atkins did not move back to Nashville until 1950, and when he did, it was only because the Carter sisters and Mother Maybell joined the Grand Ole Opry, and Chet was their guitar player. By 1950, Owen Bradley was indisputably the most important producer in Nashville. After Chet returned to the city, he spent years working as a session guitarist before reaching any significant level of influence as a musician, let alone session leader, let alone producer. In fact, Chet Atkins was still being hired to play guitar in Owen Bradley's sessions at least as late as 1953, when Webb Pierce cut There Stands the Glass and Slowly and Hank Lachlan cut Let Me Be the One all produced by Owen, all including unremarkable guitar parts from Chet. Slowly I'm falling, more in love with you. According to Chet, he spent every session studying Owen's production style. By the time Chet started leading sessions for RCA, he and everyone else in Nashville were simply doing things the way they'd learned from watching Owen. These careers did follow a similar path, from studio musician to session leader to producer to powerful label executive, but Chet Atkins would always be the first to tell you he was following in Owen Bradley's footsteps did not innovate much of anything, and had at least three employees who deserved more credit than he did for producing his sessions. A-team musicians used to joke with each other about how you could not make a mistake bad enough for Chet Atkins to say another take was necessary. This in contrast to Owen Bradley, who heard every wrong note and accepted nothing less than what he walked in the room knowing he wanted on the record. When RCA finally built a modern studio in Nashville and put Chet Atkins in charge, there was this engineer he never got along with, so Chet had the guy transferred somewhere else and advertised the open position. In 1959, Bill Porter got the job. Whatever sound fans and critics attributed to RCA's studio, Chet always credited to Bill Porter. This was backed up by studio bassist and producer Bob Moore, who said, quote, Bill Porter changed the sound of the room when he got there in 1959, end quote. Compare these statements to any account of Owen Bradley personally tinkering with every minor detail to control sound waves in the studio he built five years earlier, where nearly all the first Nashville sound records were cut. When Owen bought 804 16th Avenue, he didn't stop at gutting the house and converting it to a recording studio. He also bought a kit for a 75-foot-long by 35-foot-wide-and-high Quonset hut made of corrugated sheet metal, which he put up in the backyard. The idea was to record music in the house and use the big hut to film videos, like the many great Al Ganaway clips available on YouTube, which were shot in the hut. Harold Bradley said it may have been producer Don Law who first booked the bigger studio out back to record music. 
If Harold's memory was correct, this would have been a Mel Tillis session in April 1957. Not bad for a record cut in a big garage. This was around the time the record industry adopted stereo technology, creating more sonic space to fill, and sessions began calling for more musicians and singers to perform bigger arrangements. When producers kept asking for the larger building out back so they had more room for everyone to spread out, Owen decided to convert his video studio to an audio studio. This could not have been an easy thing to do with a curved metal building, but two years before Bill Porter showed up and gave RCA's room a sound, Owen Bradley went into his Quonset hut and turned it into the Quonset hut. He built makeshift versions of things you'll find in modern studios like vocal isolation booths, baffles, and various devices to direct sound waves where you want and keep them away from where you don't. Some improvements came by happy accident, like the time an Al Ganaway video shoot called for a wooden floor to be built over the tile in part of the hut. The wood fixed a weird sound nobody realized was coming off the tile, so they left it there. Other solutions were built from the 10 years of trial and error experience Owen Bradley had behind him by this point. Since curved ceilings are not ideal for sound, they built a giant rectangular sort of window shutter looking thing out of wood, suspended it above the live room, then piled old curtains on top to absorb sound. This is how invested Owen Bradley was in the sound of his rooms thus impacting not only his own work, but the work of anyone who used his rooms. And this is why it's significant nearly all of the first Nashville Sound recordings were made in his rooms. Having read everything there is to read on the subject, I've never seen anyone give a good reason for why any record from 1957 or any record not produced by Owen Bradley should be considered the first Nashville Sound. The list of records from 1957 and credit to Chet Atkins always seem to be presented as matters of fact, never supported by logic or argument. So I don't know what anyone thinks they hear in four walls that makes them say, there, something we've never heard before, a Nashville sound. And I will go so far as to suggest almost nobody has given serious consideration to whatever they think they mean when they use that term. To most country fans, Nashville sound seems to be shorthand to refer to 1950s pop country or pop masquerading as country with string sections and or background singers in place of fiddle and steel guitar. Which is a little weird because this existed decades earlier and Nashville had nothing to do with it. Those sounds are all over the soundtracks of Hollywood Western movies from the 1930s and 1940s. Whenever Ernest Tubb talked about being one of the first country artists to use a string section and vocal chorus in Nashville in 1951, he called it a novelty. What Ernest Tubb meant is using strings and a vocal chorus made him sound like a Hollywood cowboy, far more Western than country and the most mainstream pop culture version of Western at that. 
A lot of people think the and western part of country and western is a reference to western swing. It is not. It's a reference to western music, or at least Hollywood's version of western music, performed by singing cowboys in western movies, which were also known as horse operas, and which had exponentially larger marketing budgets than the entire country music division of any record label. This is at least 75% of how and why these sounds wound up on major label country music recorded in Nashville during the 1950s. 1941, Sons of the Pioneers record Cool Water for Decca. Note the vocals. But with the dawn I'll wake and yawn and carry on to water. Sons of the Pioneers will sing Cool Water again in a 1945 Roy Rogers movie along the Navajo Trail and re-record it several times in their career, including a 1948 version with Vaughn Monroe using a big band arrangement. And way up there, It's a top 10 pop hit. A year later, Vaughn will release the most well-known recording of Ghost Riders in the Sky. Their brands were still on fire and their hooves were made of steel. Their horns were black and shiny and their hot breath he could feel. A bolt of fear went through him as they thundered through the sky. For he saw the riders coming high. And he heard their mournful cry. Hitting number one pop with a song Gene Autry sings the same year in a movie called Riders in the Sky. Their faces gaunt, their eyes were blurred, their shirts all soaked with sweat. They're riding hard to catch that herd, but they ain't caught them yet. They've got to ride forever on that range up in the sky, on horses snorting fire. fire. As they ride on, hear them cry. Yippee-yay! In the sky. 1942, I've Got Spurs That Jingle Jangle Jingle, written by Frank Lesser, the guy who wrote the songs for Guys and Dolls, is sung by Dick Thomas in the movie The Forest Ranger. I got spurs that jingle jingle, I got spurs that jingle jangle, as I jingle, go riding merrily, as I go riding merrily and they sing, oh, ain't you glad? And that song ain't so very fun. And that song ain't so very fun. Later in the year, Kay Kaiser's big band cover stays at number one pop for two months. Oh, Lily Bell. Oh, Lily Bell. Though I may have done some fooling, this is why I never fell. 
cause I got spurs That jingle jangle jingle Jingle jangle As I go riding merrily along Jingle jangle They sing, oh, ain't you glad you're single Jingle jangle And that song ain't so very far from wrong Gene Autry's version hits number 14, selling over a million copies. 1944, Don't Fence Me In, written by another Broadway musical guy, Cole Porter, is first sung by Roy Rogers in the movie Hollywood Canteen. Just turn me loose, let me straddle my old saddle underneath the western sky. On my cayuse, let me wander over yonder till I see the mountain rise. I want to ride to the ridge where the west commences And gaze at the moon till I lose my senses I can't look at hobbles and I can't stand fences Don't fence me in A year later, Roy Rogers sings it in the movie, Don't Fence Me In. Bing Crosby's version goes number one pop. Oh, give me land, lots of land under starry skies above don't fence me in Let me ride through the wide open country that I love Don't fence me in And Gene Autry's hits number four country I want to ride to the ridge where the west commences Gaze at the moon till I lose my senses can't look at hobbles and I can't stand fences Don't fence me in What we're looking at here is the same thing major label record executives saw at the time. Millions of people watching movies about singing cowboys then going to stores to buy records that sound like the movies. In 1949, after years of trying to figure out what to call their poor black people music and poor white people music charts, Billboard replaces their race records chart with the rhythm and blues chart, and the folk records chart is changed to the country and western chart. To be clear, what we're talking about is the leading music industry trade letting everyone know they're going to continue charting the commercial success of western movie soundtracks and similar releases in the same group as all other country records. As if these products are created and promoted with comparable resources and for one single to outperform the other simply indicates superior quality. And they do this two years after Owen Bradley is hired to manufacture commercial product for DECA. Owen's bosses want to open Billboard and see his records taking a significant share of the market against the competition. They want his artists to win awards in categories which will be named after these charts. They want his records to move units in stores which will categorize inventory based on these charts. Once his competition becomes Hollywood Western soundtracks with their massive marketing budgets and silver screens around the nation pitching their product, Owen doesn't really have a choice whether or not to use these sonic tropes. However, there is still a huge difference between Hollywood Western soundtracks and Owen Bradley's Nashville sound. Because composers working on 1940s Hollywood Westerns have the same goal as producers of all other pop music in the 1940s, which is to treat as many customers as possible to a familiar experience. 
Or to make this point from the opposite direction, composers do not show up to score westerns intent on deviating from the formula to challenge the audience with revolutionary sound. Not until Ennio Morricone in the 1960s. Let's go back to Sons of the Pioneers for a second. One of their most well-known songs is Tumbling Tumbleweeds, made famous by Gene Autry in 1935 in a movie called Tumbling Tumbleweeds. See them tumbling down, to the ground, lonely but we are be found. But listen to the recording Sons of the Pioneers made for Decca the year before. Cares of the past are behind. No way to move it up high. Just where the trail will wind. Drifting along with a tumbling tumbleweed. I know when night has A few years later, an immensely successful vocal group named The Ink Spots, also signed to Decca, released one of the best-selling and most popular singles of all time, If I Didn't Care. If I didn't care More than words can say If I didn't care Would I feel this way If this isn't love Then why do I thrill And what makes my head go round and round While my heart stands still If I didn't care These records do have some differences. The melodies are not the same. The Ink Spots record has a lead singer. The Sons of the Pioneers record has a faster tempo. But otherwise, the way these records actually sound is very similar. The only difference in instrumentation is one has fiddle where the other has piano. Either group could provide the other's vocal harmonies. 
And this is not an accident. This is commercial product created by the same record label, then sold to as many people as possible through separate divisions of the label telling fans of different genres this product is made for them. When really it's pop music with one or two small concessions like band costumes, lyrical themes, or the presence of a certain instrument to suggest it's the genre fans want to buy. It's the way this has always worked. It's the reason we can say a record sounds like it was made in the 1920s or 1950s or 1980s and everyone gets the reference. This is not simply a matter of the technology available in those decades. It's a matter of industry professionals using it the same way, trying to create and sell the most profitable variations on approximately the same popular product. So imagine you're Marty Robbins in 1955. You record singing the blues in Owen Bradley's pre-Quonset hut basement studio. Well, I never felt more like crying all night Cause everything's wrong and nothing ain't right without you You got me singing the blues The moon and stars no longer shine The dream is gone, I thought was mine There's nothing left for me to do Cry over you. Don Law gets credit for producing the session, but Owen's in the room on piano, so you do the math. Or take it from country singer Johnny Bush, who wrote in his autobiography, the best thing about A&R men like Don Law is, quote, they kept their fucking mouths shut and they left the musicians to work it out and let the artist be artist, end quote. Singing the Blues comes out in 1956, goes number one country, and even makes the top 20 pop songs. If you're Marty Robbins, this is all pretty great. Then Guy Mitchell puts out a cover that sounds like he's got his thumb up his ass the whole time he's singing. Well, I never felt more like singing the blues, cause I never thought that I'd ever lose your love, dear. Why'd you do me this way? And it goes number one pop, selling three to five times as many copies, a difference of millions of records and millions of dollars. Does Guy Mitchell deserve those sales just because his product has a bigger marketing budget and better distribution? How many times do you have to hear his record all over the radio before saying, well, shit, if more people want to buy it this way, I can make it this way? January 1957. Marty Robbins goes to New York City to record in the same studio as Guy Mitchell with the same arranger and session leader, Ray Conniff. Marty cuts a white sport coat and a pink carnation. A white sport coat and a pink I'm all dressed up for the dance A white sport coat and a pink carnation I'm all alone in romance Which hits number two pop and would be the biggest record of his entire career if he didn't go full Hollywood Western two years later on El Paso. 
The arrangement of Marty Robbins' white sport coat is identical to other 1957 singles commonly given as early examples of the Nashville sound, so people who casually use the term as shorthand for pop country with strings or a vocal chorus probably do place this in the same category. However, I would urge anyone interested in a practical definition of the Nashville sound to spend time comparing this record with those coming out of Owen Bradley's studio the same year. Because the difference you will hear lies in a collection of recording techniques and production practices standardized by Owen Bradley and his favorite studio musicians in Nashville during the 1950s. In my opinion, this is the only functional definition of the Nashville sound. It also happens to be backwards compatible, a satisfactory and meaningful replacement for whatever ill-informed usage of the term one may encounter. This definition includes, but does not limit itself to, pop country with string sections and a vocal chorus. It is crucial to understand the Nashville sound exists entirely outside and apart from genre. We can demonstrate why with a little guessing game. Everyone's heard Bobby Helms do Jingle Bell Rock. Listen to it again while considering what genre you'd call it if the words were about any topic other than Christmas. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock. Jingle bells chime and jingle bell time. Dancing and prancing in jingle bell square. In the frosty air. What a bright time. It's the right time to rock the night away. Maybe you're having trouble imagining it as anything but a Christmas song. Let's try the same exercise with Bobby Helms' previous single, My Special Angel, recorded by the same musicians and in the same room as Jingle Bell Rock. You are my special angel through eternity. Here's a hint. Both singles came out in 1957 after being recorded in Owen Bradley's studio. That's right, Jingle Bell Rock and My Special Angel are country songs. Or at least Paul Cohen and Decca decided to act like they were. These and many other Nashville sound records were promoted and sold as country product even though they were created as and remain pop products. If you put My Special Angel on a playlist of 1950s pop music, nobody will ever ask why you tried to sneak in a country song, which is precisely what will happen if you try doing the same thing with Just a Little Lonesome from Bobby Helm's previous session. Always just a little lonesome Always just a little blue 
always want to cry a little when I remember you. And though this broken heart you've left me, don't ache the way it used to do. I'm only just a Just a Little Lonesome is a country song with steel guitar and honky-tonk piano, and even though it doesn't have a string section or background singers, it's also an example of the Nashville sound if we use the definition capable of explaining a difference between Marty Robbins using background singers in New York and Marty Robbins using background singers in Nashville. While I understand not everyone is going to be able to let go of the way they've been defining Nashville sound their whole lives, everyone who refuses to update their definition is still going to have to take it away from Chet Atkins and hand it to Owen Bradley. Because less than two years after Billboard created the country and western chart, when Ernest Tubb and Red Foley used strings and a vocal chorus to make a novelty record in Nashville in 1951, Owen Bradley played organ and produced the session at Castle. The strings went on a version of Kentucky Waltz for the record's A-side. We were waltzing that night in Kentucky Beneath the beautiful harvest moon And I was the boy that was lucky but it all ended too soon As I sit here alone in the moonlight I see your smiling face And I long once more for your embrace and that beautiful Kentucky Walls. And the B-side was Strange Little Girl with the Anita Kerr singers, who Owen signed to Decca around this time, five years before the Jordanaires ever sang with Elvis Presley. Now I don't know who she was And I don't she came from I only know there was an angel glow in the eyes of the strange little girl. Novel though it may have been, relegated to the B-side as it was, Strange Little Girl was a top 10 country and western hit. The two sides of this record are the earliest examples I've heard of the ahistorical and misinformed concept of the Nashville sound. Using a logical and cohesive definition, no recording from Castle captures the Nashville sound because they didn't yet have the rooms or equipment necessary to create or record its complex dynamics. The dynamic range of an instrument comprises the span from quietest to loudest tones the instrument can produce. If you tap a snare drum head as lightly as possible with a drumstick, 
Then hit it as hard as you can. The extreme difference in resulting loudness is the snare drum's dynamic range. Similarly, the dynamic range of a record is the distance between its quietest and loudest moments. Some records maintain a relatively consistent loudness from beginning to end. These are not dynamic records. Other records feature abrupt shifts in loudness or suddenly introduce an instrument to the mix only to let it disappear again. These are two techniques to produce dynamic records. If we were to sum up Owen Bradley's entire philosophy of sound in one word, it would be dynamic. By the time Patsy Cline cut Walkin' After Midnight at 804 16th Avenue in late 1956, Owen Bradley was receiving an associate producer label credit for his work in Paul Cohen Sessions. I go out walking after midnight Out in the moonlight Just like we used to do I'm always walking after midnight Searching for you Walking After Midnight was not Patsy Cline's most dynamic hit, but it was her first. She had no others until 1961, when she was finally released from a bad contract with Four Star Records in California, who never gave Owen full control of Patsy Cline's sessions. As soon as he was free to select her material and record it however he liked, Owen produced I Fall to Pieces. Because it's a shuffle, the bass and drums are fairly static. They begin and end with the song and remain at the same loudness throughout, while other instruments such as piano and steel find little pockets of space to introduce dynamic splashes of sound. You want me to act like we've never kissed. You want me to forget. The static elements provide a constant frame of reference for the dynamic elements to weave in and out of the record. When this is done correctly, it holds our attention and keeps us looking forward to whatever may happen next. The fluttery little stumble half the instruments take after Patsy sings the title in every chorus is called a syncopation. This word shares a Latin root with swoon and was initially used to refer to the process of dropping syllables from multiple words in order to form contractions. Like how the O and U are syncopated from you all to create y'all. In musical applications, you could think of syncopation as grabbing the rhythm of a song and shaking so it falls to pieces for a second. The most widely familiar example is probably the hand clap section of the Friends theme. No one told you life was gonna be this way. 
syncopated rhythms disrupt a rhythm. The syncopation in I Fall to Pieces forces a split-second seven-note riff into the song's 4-4 rhythm. It shouldn't work at all, but it ends up being the musical hook, a dynamic element keeping us ready and waiting for whatever comes next in the song, even and especially if we've heard the song a thousand times. Owen Bradley loved syncopation. Really, he'd use any kind of musical cue to play into the theme of a song. Sometimes, as here, he was as blatant and literal as the song title, but he could also be more subtle and abstract, as in Patsy Cline's following singles, Crazy and She's Got You. In She's Got You, the cue is Floyd Kramer's twinkly piano, presumably representative of the love trance the she has placed upon the you, Patsy's bewitched ex-lover in the song. I've got your picture that you gave to me And it's signed with love just like it used to be The only thing different, the only thing new I've got your picture, she's got you in Crazy, it's the dizzy, off-kilter way every instrument takes turns falling behind and catching up to the beat. Even the drums seem to subtly falter here and there. Crazy for thinking that my love could hold you. I'm crazy for trying and crazy for crying. And I'm crazy for loving you Crazy In both of these songs, Bob Moore's bass plays a more dynamic role than in Walking After Midnight. It is Bob playing on all the Patsy clips. He's on nearly everything she recorded, which is why his stand-up bass is in the Patsy Cline Museum in Nashville. Owen Bradley first hired Bob Moore for a recording session in 1950, when Bob was around 18 years old. The year before, Bob's roommate made an instrumental guitar record called Sugarfoot Rag. Garland is now a legend, but he was just another working session musician when he had a hit with Sugarfoot Rag. Red Foley had Garland and Von Horton write lyrics to the tune, then Red covered it with Garland on guitar and Tommy Jackson on fiddle. One foot, two foot, slew foot, drag, swing your honey to the Sugarfoot Rag. Dig a little jig, then a zig and a zag with the guitar picking out the Sugarfoot Rag. It went number four pop as the B-side of a record. The A-side went number one pop and country, an early crossover hit for Owen Bradley as uncredited producer and a huge leap toward his Nashville sound. 
Listen to WSM staff drummer Ferris Corsi slapping his leg to meet Owen's request for a musical cue to represent the popping sound of a shoeshine rag. Ferris hit his leg so hard and so many times it began to hurt and he had to switch legs halfway through the take. Have you ever passed the corner of Fourth and Grand where a little ball of rhythm has a shoeshine stand? People gather round and they clap their hands. He's a great big bundle of joy. He pops a boogie woogie rag, the Chattanooga shoeshine boy. In 1950, the year Chad Atkins moved back to Nashville as the Carter Sisters guitar player, Chattanooga shoeshine boy was the number one country song in the nation for three months. Since it was cut the day before Hank Garland's first Red Foley session, it's Grady Martin playing guitar. Grady moved to Nashville in 1949 when he was hired into Little Jimmy Dickens' band. In 1951, Grady Martin and the Slewfoot Five were signed to Decca. As far as I can tell, this band was just Owen Bradley, Grady Martin, and the beginnings of the Nashville A-Team, including Bob Moore, Hank Garland, and Harold Bradley. Any Owen Bradley session over the following decade without at least two of these musicians in the room would be a rarity. Each of these musicians quote-unquote led countless sessions for other producers in Nashville, working the way they'd learned from Owen. Don Law produced Marty Robbins' El Paso at Owen Bradley's studio in 1959, but you already heard how great Don was at shutting up and ceding control to the musicians, which that day meant Bob Moore on bass and Grady Martin on guitar. If a car accident had not ended Hank Garland's career in 1961, he'd be counted with his friends Bob, Grady, and Harold as both one of the most recorded musicians and uncredited producers in history. Only a few months before the wreck, Hank Garland and Bob Moore played on Elvis Presley's Little Sister. Earlier in the year, Bob Moore arranged the string section and vocal chorus for Roy Orbison's Running Scared. According to Harold Bradley, producer Fred Foster normally only paid attention to Roy Orbison's voice and left the studio musicians to their own devices. Running Scared does actually seem to have been at least half produced by Fred Foster, though, because he had to pull rank to get Bob Moore to stop forcing a steady rhythm and let the song stagger through its series of crescendos. The lyrics have Roy worrying himself into a state of near panic over his lover's ex showing up on date night to try and get her back. For whatever reason, maybe there's only one place to hang out in this town, Roy seems certain this will happen. And the problem is he doesn't know what his girlfriend will do. Will she go back to the ex? Will she stay with Roy? This is his swirling turmoil throughout the song. Just run and each place we go 
so afraid that he might show. From listening to the string arrangement, it's obvious Bob Moore had worked thousands of Owen Bradley sessions. Bob's strings lay out for nearly the entire first minute until Roy really starts to get himself worked up. Then the strings join in with the other instruments mimicking the pulse of Roy's pounding heart as all his thoughts and feelings circle this one fear approaching the moment of truth. Suddenly, the song breaks open as the instruments scatter, and there, standing in the clearing, it's the X. There are two direct references in the lyrics to this rival's physical presence. Each is trailed by high siren calls from the strings, a sonic representation of the all-consuming fear Roy's anticipated in this moment from the beginning of the song. This is identical to the way important characters in opera may have recurring musical themes or motifs accompanying their presence, especially when in epic conflict with other characters who have their own themes and motifs. Young love is intense. The intro of Brenda Lee's Heart in Hand teases a standard 1950s pop verse before her voice stomps into center stage and it becomes unclear whether or not she's planning to actually rip out her own heart with her hand. She sings this song like it's trying to kill her, and indeed, the music almost seems to sadistically toy with her, providing a place to stand only to disappear from beneath her feet, occasionally lifting her head, but only to force her to look up and be reminded of how far she's fallen. Yeah, I was the last one. I was the very last one to know. Smile. 
At the end, just before Brenda slips into recitation, the violin takes over her vocal melody as if it knows she can't last much longer. Then the music drops out completely in order to come back with her final note. Here I stand I've got my heart in my hand Looking like a Left behind by you. These are dynamic choices. This is the Nashville Sound, produced by Owen Bradley in 1962, with Grady Martin, Harold Bradley, and Ray Eddington on guitars, Bob Moore on bass, Buddy Harmon on drums, Floyd Kramer playing piano, and if you listen very closely, Boots Randolph on saxophone. As recording artists, the Anita Kerr singers had since moved from DECA to RCA, but they still took session work, and they're here too. All these musicians were members of the Nashville A-Team, the topic of this podcast next episode. The biggest hits of Brenda Lee's career were produced by Owen Bradley in the early 1960s. There is nothing country about them, which is why, following Owen's promotion to head of DECA's Nashville operations, the label didn't ship the records to country radio, they weren't played on country radio, nor were they country hits. The genre lines were not even blurry enough to cross over to country radio after becoming major pop hits, which is what often happened in this era. Yet, Brenda Lee's biggest hits remain examples of the Nashville sound, as influential on the city's recording techniques and country music as everything else Owen Bradley did. Brenda Lee's records are another of many reasons the Nashville sound cannot be summed up as some bland, lifeless era in country music. There were bland, lifeless records created with the Nashville sound, as is true of any sound in the history of the record industry. But its main architect and innovator created vibrant recordings, dynamic even when judged by modern standards. Owen Bradley and his Nashville sound cannot be reduced to and blamed for commercially motivated attempts to piggyback on his masterpieces. Compare his work on Heart in Hand with what Chet Atkins did the same year on Skeeter Davis's The End of the World. This is a fair comparison to make. These songs have very similar chord progressions, both have a bridge and a recitation, they share lyrical themes. Floyd Kramer, Buddy Harmon, Bob Moore, and the Anita Kerr singers perform on both records. It's easy to imagine two producers working in the same city at the same time with the same musicians on two very similar songs about the same thing would end up making a somewhat similar product. But the standard 1950s pop intro on End of the World is never subverted or transformed. It never becomes anything else. Don't they know it's the end of the world? 
for a song about someone who's surprised the entire planet hasn't treated her broken heart like a stop sign, End of the World is almost military in its steady rhythmic persistence. The piano, in particular, is truly relentless. The closest thing to a surprise happens when a pedal steel gently insinuates itself into the mix a couple times. The closest thing we get to tension is a little over halfway through when all the instruments, even the piano, finally give the march a 10 second rest before starting right back up again. I wake up in the morning and I wonder why everything's the same as it was. I can't understand, no I can't understand how life goes on the way it does. Why does my heart Where Brenda Lee sings heart in hand like she's gonna die because there's an Owen Bradley arrangement behind her, Skeeter Davis sings end of the world like she swallowed two clonopin because there's a Chet Atkins arrangement behind her. When Skeeter delivers the recitation, it sounds like a teacher has asked her to read out loud in front of a classroom. Why does my heart go on beating? Why do these eyes of mine If you strip Skeeter's vocal from this record, everything you had left would be just as suitable for a song about a little kid's pet goldfish swimming around in its bowl. Everything is subdued, Buddy Harmon is definitely using brushes instead of sticks on his snare, and Chet probably would have replaced the drum with a metronome if he thought he could get away with it. End of the World is heartache music for people who've either never had their heart broken or can't handle being reminded of it. This safe commercial product was a number two pop hit. Comparatively, Heart in Hand is an emotionally dangerous record. It could easily ambush a person who's had their heart broken and make it impossible for them to leave their house that day. It charted at number 14. Since RCA shipped Skeeter Davis's End of the World to country radio and promoted it as though it were a country product, it also hit number two country. End of the World was such a big hit. Owen Bradley had Brenda Lee record a version in 1963. It's possible this was partly a response to how many people called out the change in Skeeter Davis's sound after Owen had a number one pop record in 1960 with Brenda Lee's I'm Sorry. And all of a sudden, Skeeter Davis records were drenched in strings. Owen made no radical changes to the song structure or instrumentation on Brenda's End of the World. He even had Buddy Harmon use brushes on his drums. But this would be no military affair. Owen brought the tempo way down and made all the instruments do that take turns lagging ever so slightly behind the beat thing. 
Brenda, in particular, comes in almost aggressively late on most of her lines. Why does the sun go on shining? Why does the sea rush to shore? Don't they know it's the end of the world? The whole song drags, you know, as if the world may be about to end. Pay close attention to the piano part, and unlike the monotonous slog of Chet's record, you'll hear the individual notes played with varying force, like a child still learning to play scales, or like the record is on a damaged turntable with a slight wobble. Don't they know it's the This sounds more like heartache. This record was not a hit. Skeeter Davis cut her follow-up single to End of the World in the same room with many of the same musicians, but one enormous difference. Anita Kerr, who arranged the strings for End of the World, was given full control of this session. Now, Anita once told 18 bassist Henry Strzelecki how frustrated she was with the major labels in Nashville because they wanted her vocal group on sessions and wanted her to arrange string parts, but nobody would officially hire her in an A&R position and let her become a real producer. They gave her a session every now and then, even gave her label credit sometimes, but nobody would give her the full-time job. A few years after this session, she sued her way out of the Anita Kerr singer's contract with RCA, broke up the group, and moved to Los Angeles to see if it was any better out there. All of which is to say, there's no telling why they let her produce I'm Saving My Love. Maybe Chet Atkins called in sick, but the difference between this and Skeeter's previous record is mind-blowing. And either both records are examples of the Nashville sound, or the Nashville sound is just what we call the Skeeter Davis singles we don't like. Owen Bradley's influence here is undeniable. Floyd Kramer's piano part is lifted directly from what he played two years earlier on Patsy Cline's She's Got You, so we must have another sort of trance on our hands. Everything opens with a bolero-influenced drum breakdown, meaning Buddy Harmon gets to actually hit his snare a few times before the verse falls into reverie. Clear from the jumpy beginning, Skeeter won't be going on another zombie walk, but it does sound like she's out on a bit of a melancholy stroll, dwelling on a past love. Then the chorus skips over to an entirely separate melody, so strong this record could easily have been taken apart into two different songs. When Skeeter starts singing about time, not that she's waited, but how long she's waited, it's almost like she's now singing about a different person, her future person, the soulmate she's awaited. 
For the first time in the song, another voice joins Skeeter's. And it's her own voice, overdubbed, doubling her, mirroring her, beginning to pull her from this sad spell into the future where the bolero builds. She briefly returns to the verse, singing the old words with new meaning, not faith, but knowledge of what she's foreseen. Then the bolero pulls her forward in time, toward the voice, and the song ends as it began. Only Skeeter is no longer alone. This is a piece with movement, a journey. This record was produced by Anita Kerr not to play it safe, but for maximum dramatic effect, in an obvious attempt to craft a record the way Owen Bradley would. It's also a pop record, which RCA shipped and promoted as country. It hit the country top 10 and barely missed the pop top 40, a decent commercial success, but much less of one than End of the World. There was a market for what Chet Atkins did with the Nashville sound, just like there's always a market for the safer alternative to any trend. RCA and other major labels didn't even have to go out of their way to create this alternative. All we're talking about here is low-sodium soy sauce. The leading brand doesn't need to build a whole new factory to make low-sodium soy sauce. It's the same exact thing they're already doing with some of the salts taken out and a different color bottle. If that's what people want, no problem. Take out the salt and get it on the shelf. I don't believe it's fair to say, as many people do, Chet Atkins hated country music. Chet Atkins made a conscious business decision to provide the low-sodium Nashville sound, and he caught so much shit for it he even apologized. In a 1976 issue of Rolling Stone magazine, after saying he hoped country music would never lose its whole identity, Chet said, quote, I apologize for anything I did in taking it too far uptown, which I sometimes did because we were just trying to sell records, end quote. There are Chet Atkins productions we all enjoy, like Hank Lachlan's Please Help Me, I'm Falling, and Don Gibson's Oh Lonesome Me. When other major label suits in country music were wary of signing a black man to a record deal, Chet Atkins took a chance on Charlie Pride, as unadulterated a country voice as you will ever hear. And it's definitely not Chet Atkins' fault so many people have said so many erroneous things about him and his career. But all of that being said, it would take a while to tell the story of every legendary artist who only found lasting success after struggling against and winning their freedom from Chet Atkins' one-size-fits-all production methods. Bobby Bear, Waylon Jennings, and Porter Wagner are only a few. Because the thing about Chet Atkins is he either didn't hear or didn't care to hear when an individual singer couldn't fit the mold he had in mind for them. Artists did not have this problem with Owen Bradley. 
He understood country records and pop records are created in the studio, not later, when the label decides it'd be easier to launch a pop product by following the old rock and roll formula of exploiting country music markets. Owen understood the sauce should be chosen to complement the entree of singer and song. There are no one-sauce-fits-all solutions, which is a lesson Owen learned at the beginning of the 1950s. In December 1950, Eddie Arnold and his band went into RCA's New York City studio and cut a version of Bill Monroe's Kentucky Waltz. We were waltzing that night in Kentucky By that beautiful harvest moon And I was the boy that was lucky but it all ended too soon. Bill Monroe was on DECA, so when someone at his label, probably Paul Cohen, heard about Eddie Arnold cutting a Bill Monroe song in a New York City session, they had the bright idea to beat Eddie to the punch by getting Bill Monroe to cut a new version of Kentucky Waltz using the modern instrumentation they assumed would be on RCA's record. So Bill Monroe went to Castle with his mandolin, but without his band, to record with Owen Bradley's studio guys. If you need proof this wasn't a normal Bill Monroe session, they had Ferris Corsi there to play drums. Jimmy Self and Grady Martin were on guitars, and Grady switched to fiddle in the middle of songs to double Tommy Jackson's fiddle parts. Owen Bradley played organ, and the results sound a lot like circus music. Beneath a beautiful harvest moon And I was the boy that was lucky But it all ended too soon The best thing captured in these sessions was probably Prisoner's Song. The fact is, Bill Monroe just does not fit into honky-tonk arrangements. His sound is so unique, the musical equivalent of putting soy sauce on vanilla ice cream. It's unsettling to hear him attempt being anything else. Other than a couple of Christmas songs cut later in the year, Bill Monroe was subsequently allowed to run his own sessions. And once Owen Bradley was put in charge of DECA, Bill Monroe got to do whatever he wanted. Please tell me why you betrayed 
dark as the night I'm blue as the day Dark as the Night, Blue as the Day was recorded in January 1959 in the Quonset Hut. Those still seeking a practical definition will note the only morsel of Nashville's sound on this tape is the room where it was made because to Owen Bradley, producing Bill Monroe meant leaving him and the Bluegrass Boy to do whatever they were going to do in the studio. None of his other artists were Bill Monroe, which is why nearly everything Owen did after Castle was torn down is an example of the Nashville sound. Most of Owen's sessions came with a set of questions he needed to ask and answer ahead of time, like, is this a country singer or a pop singer? Is this potentially a country hit or potentially a pop hit? As we've heard, it's often the case these questions weren't either or. For example, Don't Touch Me, written by Hank Cochran in 1966. This is obviously a country song, dealing as directly with mature emotional and sexual feelings as Chris Christopherson's Help Me Make It Through the Night would do a few years later. By 1966, Hank Cochran had written country hits for Patsy Cline, Ray Price, and Johnny Paycheck. He wrote Don't Touch Me for his girlfriend, Jeannie Seeley, and she recorded it in her first session for Monument, produced by Fred Foster, with Floyd Kramer on piano, Charlie McCoy on bass, and Buddy Harmon on drums. Just to recap, this is a producer who we already know was inclined to focus on his artist voice, leaving the music to the musicians. This is Patsy Cline's piano player, harmonica player, and drummer. And this is a song by the author of She's Got You and co-author of I Fall to Pieces. There is no universe where these guys don't try to make a Patsy Cline record in this session. To be clear, at no point does Jeannie Seeley attempt to sing like Patsy Cline. What she does is her own thing and it's great. But the arrangement and production are an undisguised tribute to Owen Bradley's work with Patsy Cline. The pre-tape rundown may as well have been a 45 of I Fall to Pieces played at 33 RPM. Your hand is like a torch Each time you touch me The blue in your eye pulls me apart The door to heaven If I can't come in Don't touch me If you don't love me As soon as he heard Jeannie sing Don't Touch Me on the radio, Owen Bradley understood what it was and scheduled a session to cover it. This was obviously a pop song written by Hank Cochran, who'd by this time written pop hits for Patsy Cline, Eddie Arnold, and Burl Ives. The lyrics were about a search for commitment on the dating scene, but phrased simply enough for mass consumption. For example, the clumsy little pop line, to have you then lose you wouldn't be smart on my part, was probably only there to create a rhyme with the word sweetheart. A few years earlier, Owen signed Wilma Burgess to Decca because he thought her voice had a similar quality to Patsy Cline's in that it wouldn't be out of place on country or pop radio. 
Aside from signing to Patsy's record label to work with Patsy's producer, musicians, and songwriters, Wilma Burgess had also recently purchased Patsy Cline's house in Nashville. So it's safe to assume she didn't miss any of the references to Patsy in the Jeannie Seeley record. Around the time Owen signed Wilma to Decca, he sold his studios at 804 16th Avenue to Columbia Records. In 1965, Owen opened Bradley's Barn, an actual barn converted to a studio on his land outside Nashville. But when he booked the session to cover Don't Touch Me, even though he had a whole new studio in his backyard, Owen rented the Quonset hut from Columbia Records in order to use the same room he'd used with Patsy Cline. This is the record he would have made with Patsy if she was still alive to sing the song. Your hand is like a torch Each time you touch me That look in your eyes Pulls me apart Don't open the door It's a testament to the versatility of the Nashville A-Team that several of the same musicians played on both the Jeannie Seeley and Wilma Burgess records. Buddy Emmons' pedal steel parts are the most remarkable points of contrast. His playing behind Jeannie is tasteful, weaving in and out of a slow country song as he'd done so many times. Behind Wilma, his instrument is barely recognizable. You could easily convince someone they're hearing a theremin or synthesizer, especially since the background vocals sound like they were arranged by Brian Wilson for the Pet Sound Sessions. As though we've never kissed Don't touch me If you don't love me only this was recorded two months before Pet Sounds came out. And once we noticed the dream sequence rhythm guitars shimmering atop tic-tac bass, tropes used by Owen for a decade by this point, it's maybe time to start asking how many Owen Bradley records Brian Wilson listened to in his room. There's honestly no telling what instructions or reference points Owen gave his musicians to get these sounds on Don't Touch Me. It may have been as simple as telling them to imagine a door to heaven opened up in the middle of the room. Jeannie Seeley's country record snuck into the Pop Hot 100 at number 85 and went number one country everywhere except Billboard, where it's possible Wilma's smaller hit cut into Jeannie's action and kept her out of number one. Wilma's single went number 12 country and did nothing on the pop chart. Wilma's Misty Blue, recorded in the same Quonset Hut session, came out six months later.
It was a top five country song, still nothing on the pop charts. But the low-sodium version Chet Atkins produced for Eddie Arnold came out the following year, hit number 57 on the Hot 100, and went number three country, despite featuring zero elements of country music whatsoever. Just a mention of your name Turns the flicker to a flame I think of things we used to do Then my whole world turns misty blue It's easy to see how the Nashville sound and Chet Atkins' role within it came to be so widely misunderstood when Chet's safer alternative regularly outsold and outcharted Owen's source material. It's like Owen used to say to Whisper and Bill Anderson, remember, vanilla still outsells all those 31 other flavors of ice cream. And Chad Atkins' massive success with vanilla, of course, inspired other producers to create their own variations on the flavor, leading to more of the safer alternative than exists of the original source material. So the takeaway for most casual listeners and fans and writers who came to town after Owen Bradley left Music Row becomes something like, The Nashville sound is what it's called when record labels try to sell Frank Sinatra music on country radio, which leads to endless debates over how much pop should be allowed in country, which is an argument about genre, which has nothing to do with the production techniques of the Nashville sound. It's like arguing over what genre a guitar is. Genre is determined not by the presence of a guitar, but by the way it is used. The Nashville sound is determined not by the genre of music, but by a systematically applied style of record production. We'll get into more of these particulars during the next episode, but the Nashville sound is in the way instruments are arranged, played, mic'd, and mixed for a record. If the Nashville sound were a genre, it would be possible to reproduce in a live setting. An artist can bring the instrumentation and arrangement from any Nashville sound record to the stage, and their audience may leave having seen and heard a wonderful performance of songs they know from Nashville sound records, but they will not have heard the Nashville sound itself coming from the stage. Ray Price was one of the very few country artists to ever hire a string section for his touring band in an attempt to produce even an approximation of his Nashville sound records. John Anderson is the only country artist I've ever heard of hiring a full-time baritone guitarist for his touring band purely to recreate tic-tac bass. The reason for this is simple. The Nashville sound is the inverse of the Bakersfield sound. In Bakersfield, bands needed to be heard over the crowd in loud, rowdy venues, so a sound evolved which was then translated to records. In Nashville, Owen Bradley and his favorite studio musician standardized a collection of production techniques and practices for making records, thereby creating a sound that lives only on records. These techniques can be and were used to record different genres of music, and some producers did use the Nashville sound to pull country music in a pop direction. But it's just as fair to say Owen Bradley pulled pop music in a country direction. 
both with the far-reaching influence of his work and with the work itself. In the early 1960s, country songwriter Harlan Howard was in a meeting with Owen when Harlan brought up a rock and roll singer he knew who secretly wanted to record country music, but nobody would let him. After listening to a tape, Owen Bradley signed Conway Twitty to Decca and became his producer. In 1965, Together Forever was released as Conway's first Decca single. You know you're in for undiluted country music when it kicks off pretending to be a cover of Buck Owens' smash hit from the year before, Together Again. Together, forever, and always. No more sleepless nights and lonely days. I promise I've hurt you for the last time We'll be together forever and always Owen produced Conway Twitty until 1979. They made over 30 top five country singles together, 20 of which hit number one. Even as mainstream pop absorbed disco sounds and those influences made their way into the Nashville sound, many of Conway's hits remained unapologetically country. Shit, they were recorded in a barn. I see the sparkling little diamond on your hand. It's plain to see that you've already got a man I can tell you're not about to fall for any of my life I see the want to Looking at Owen Bradley's career from beginning to end, we see a journey toward country music, not away from it. Say we're able to forget his co-writing credit on Night Train to Memphis and ignore all his early years with Ernest Tubb, Red Foley, Webb Pierce, and Hank Williams. We can pretend he was just cashing paychecks and hated every second of it. Wipe the entire slate clean of everything before he took over at Decca, and Owen Bradley still signed a rock singer to help him make country music. And the only reason Loretta Lynn's name hasn't come up yet is we're talking about her in the next episode. Owen Bradley was never interested in trying to force a square peg into a round hole. He was there to serve the artists, the material, and the sound. Owen was there to make something cooler than cool. Thank you for listening to Cocaine and Rhinestones. Every episode is written and produced by me, Tyler Mahan Co. If you enjoyed learning about Owen Bradley's influence on basically everything that happened in Nashville in the second half of the 20th century, please talk about this episode on whatever platforms are available to you. This is an entirely independent podcast which owes its existence to word-of-mouth recommendations. So just talking about the show is a great way to help me keep doing this. 
If anyone you know doesn't like listening to podcasts or hates the sound of my voice, but you think they would be interested in these important pieces of music history, you can send them to cocaineandrhinestones.com to read transcripts of each episode. Every episode's blog post also contains relevant pictures, relevant video clips, information on my sources, and a complete list of the songs featured in the episode, along with links to buy whatever is available to purchase online. Speaking of online purchases, there is now official podcast merch available on the website. You can get a few different versions of the beautiful show artwork on t-shirts or a hoodie. There are also currently stickers, a tote bag, and a koozie in the store. I know a lot of people dislike pre-ordering things, but launching the store with pre-orders is the only way to ensure as many people as possible get the designs they like without everything selling out right away. And I've got to let everyone know, the only way to make sure you get something you want is by putting in a pre-order. All the designs currently available for pre-order will be pressed up, but I have no way to predict how fast inventory will sell out once everything is in stock. We will only be restocking the most popular designs. Here too, I have no way of predicting which designs those will be. So if you know you want something, but you're trying to wait until it's in stock and no longer a pre-order, you do run the risk of it selling out and never coming back. I do make a small profit from merchandise, but if you don't need another t-shirt and you'd still like to do more for the show, hands down, the best way to help is by going to patreon.com slash tylermayhanco and becoming a patron. Season 2 would not be happening without the support of everyone who signed up for the Patreon at any point, even if only to give $5 or $10 for one or two months. Every little bit helps. You can choose an amount to donate every month or receive a discounted membership by paying for a year in advance, for which you receive a monthly post documenting my work on and around this show, as well as ad-free versions of new episodes as they come out. As you've already heard me say, when the podcast returns, it will be with an episode on the Nashville A-Team. These two episodes are really two sides of the same coin. There's no way to talk about Owen Bradley without talking about the A-Team, and there's no way to talk about the A-Team without talking about Owen Bradley. Just as we did here, we're going to cover a lot of ground, correct a lot of misunderstandings, and hear more about some of the best music ever made by some of the greatest artists of all time. All right, liner notes. I know this entire podcast and especially episodes like this really sound as though you're just listening to me go off on my own ideas about the history of country music. So I'm going to remind everyone of something I said in season one, which is hearing all this information delivered through the medium of my voice does not mean you're hearing my personal opinions unless I directly state that's what you're hearing. And even when I do state something is my personal opinion, like the practical definition of Nashville sound given in this episode, That opinion is nearly always based on having deeply researched the perspectives of the people responsible for creating whatever I'm talking about. My opinion is not something I have fabricated out of thin air. It's me agreeing with people who I believe were in the best position to speak with authority on any given topic. It's a product of the years I spent researching the topic in order to present you with the perspective of the people who were actually there when all of this happened. 
In this case, the artists and producers and studio musicians working in Nashville at the time, often the originators of these concepts and even the terms themselves, which then become distorted through popular misunderstanding and misuse by people who really have no idea what they're talking about and no authority to speak on the matter. So yes, you're hearing my voice communicate these perspectives in my words, but I am 100% always trying to represent the thoughts and beliefs of important historical figures, not whatever random ideas I would like to be true. And by the way, I know that low-sodium products are not inherently safer for everyone to consume, but that's the way they're often packaged and thought of, which is the mentality my analogy was borrowing. Uh, some random things here, the train whistle sound in Wabash Cannonball really was coming from Roy Acuff's throat. It wasn't any kind of trick or fakery. Train whistle imitations kinda used to be a thing. I've seen people do it in person, but I have no idea how it's done. On the subject of Owen Bradley caring about his artist identities shining through the work, I should mention I'm aware of the story about Buddy Holly's disastrous sessions for Decca in Nashville and that Jerry Allison of the Crickets tells the story like Owen Bradley really didn't give a shit about anything other than being late to go water skiing. But that part of the story has never really made any sense to me because there isn't a single other story like that about Owen Bradley. There's not one other story of him trying to rush through a recording session to go be somewhere else. The reality is he could go water skiing whenever he wanted. There's also the matter of this other quote attributed to Jerry Allison. Quote, Back on those dates, I don't even remember which guy was Paul Cohen and which guy was Owen Bradley or who the engineers were. It was like they were the biggies and we were just dips. We didn't groove with them or anything. End quote. Since we have the source for this story point blank on record as not really knowing who the hell they're talking about, I think it's entirely plausible Paul Cohen was actually the person in the studio who wanted to get out to go water skiing. Especially when you consider he could not go water skiing in a Nashville area lake whenever he wanted because he flew down from New York for the session. There's also the matter of the tape recording of Paul Cohen being a complete bastard to Buddy Holly about not letting him out of his recording contract. This whole story is almost always told from a raucous perspective which positions Nashville studio players and producers as not really knowing anything about rock and roll. If this and the next episode of Cocaine and Rhinestones aren't enough to prove that's one of the most ignorant takes imaginable, definitely go listen to the first Johnny Burnett and the Rock and Roll Trio album, because that's definitely Grady Martin playing guitar and probably Bob Moore on bass. A little connection between this episode and the previous one, the band backing up Burl Ives on his version of Diesel Smoke, Dangerous Curves was Grady Martin and the Slewfoot Five. As for my sources, other than the reference books from the main library page on the podcast website, I don't have a lot. I gave Michael Kosser's How Nashville Became Music City a shout out in the episode because that's where I got the Norbert Putnam story. And it's probably the best single book from the library for anyone particularly interested in this episode and the next. The main book used for the Ernest Tubb episode in season one was a source again here. 
That's Air Castle of the South, Craig Haverhurst, Great History of WSM. What I said in this episode about WSM not being a country station for most of its 20th century existence is why that book isn't on the library page. But it will continue to be a source anytime WSM plays a big part in a story. There's the 1964 issue of Music Business Magazine already mentioned, the 1976 Rolling Stone interview with Chet Atkins already mentioned. Other than that, a lot of this episode was just me talking about records from the perspectives of all the people involved in making them, which is informed by the books on that library page and my time spent in the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum archives. And actually, maybe that is an important thing to point out, how often the records themselves are the main source for episodes of the show. If you know what you're looking at and take the time to track down all the threads, there is a lot of story hiding in the artist who recorded certain songs and when and to what degree of success, which all ties into larger career moves and industry trends and so on and so on. As for all the ice stuff at the beginning, I did read a book called Chilled, How Refrigeration Changed the World and Might Do So Again by Tom Jackson. But the bulk of that book is really about the technology itself and the science of refrigeration and ice manufacturing, which I didn't even really get into. And a lot of what I put together in the intro around ice cream came from more general research on the dates of inventions and Howard Johnson and things like that. The narrative in this intro was really more constructed from all of that raw data. Okay, I'll be back in a couple weeks with more on the Nashville A-Team, the Nashville Sound, and how Music Row ties into the larger histories of pop, rock, and country music. Do not ask me, love, to linger, for you know not what you say. When my beauty calls, my sweetheart's voice is vain. But your heart need not be sighing If I'm not among the dying I'll be with you when the roses bloom again When the roses bloom again beside the river And the robin redbreast sings his sweet refrain as in days of all anxiety, I'll be with you, sweetheart mine. I'll be with you when the roses bloom again.